0: Welcome to episode 342 of the IT Career Energizer podcast. My guest on today's show is a video game pioneer, an award-winning filmmaker, an innovative technologist, an author, and a museum of modern art artist. He now employs his eclectic skill set as a psychotherapist in California's Silicon Valley. His latest book, Once Upon Atari details his exploits at Atari and how they reshaped his life. So it's my absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Howard Scott Warshaw.
1: Well, thank you, Phil. It's really great to be here. appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, I'm delighted that you could join me, and I'm really quite excited actually to talk about your career history and understand a little bit more about some of the things we've mentioned during the introduction. So I'd actually like to start with asking you about The award-winning filmmaker accolade. So could you maybe give us a bit of an insight into how that came about?
1: Sure. I mean, filmmaking was something I was always interested in. In fact, you know, I grew up before there were video games. So whereas nowadays people grow up aspiring to be video game makers or designers to some degree, I grew up aspiring to be a filmmaker. And so at one point in my career, because I never actually went to Hollywood or worked around to the whole thing. But at some point I did go back to school and got a certificate in video production and started making documentaries. And uh, I always want to make a documentary whenever I discover there's a topic about which there are uh, widespread misconceptions. And when the truth is more engaging and more interesting than what the misconception is, I like myth busting in a way that's more entertaining. Yep. And uh, right. I did a documentary series also called Once Upon Atari about being a, a game programmer and maker at Atari. And then I did another uh, I did another documentary called Vice and Consent that was about the San Francisco kink and BDSM scene. So I thought that would be an interesting subject matter to, to deal with. And uh, that actually ended up winning Best Documentary Feature at the Cinekink Film Festival in New York.
0: Right. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's interesting. Why did you pick that particular subject? I know you said it was potentially interesting, but was there a, something that particularly well, inspired you to, to choose Absolutely. That?
1: I mean, you know, I'm now a psychotherapist and I've always been extremely open-minded. And so alternative sexuality was always something I thought was interesting i never had a lot of judgment about it. I thought I had a lot of understanding about it. And then at one point of a long, long time friend of mine became deeply involved in the kink scene. And as she did, she was relating her experiences to me. And I realized, wow, I really thought I understood what was going on there. And I had no real concept of, of the actual inner dynamics and workings. I thought it was fascinating. I was certainly curious about it. So I thought, here's a great way to investigate it with plausible deniability and come out with a film and a product that I can possibly use in market. And of course, there's the sex sells thing. And uh, so with the best of intentions, I went out and put this together. Uh, the irony of the whole thing, because there's always irony in my life, <laughs> is that I found out that I ended up doing what was essentially a psychological treatise about uh, kink and alternative sexuality and where people are coming from, no pun intended, you know, in that whole area. And I didn't really go anywhere as a salacious piece, which was my original marketing hook, but I use it now regularly in lecturing to uh, potential therapists about working with alternative sexuality clients. So it actually found a market in academia when originally I was trying to do a sex sells kind of piece.
0: So, yep.
1: you know, but that's the way it is in media. You find your audience where you can. And, and if you can, if you get any audience, you're grateful.
0: In absolutely right. Yes. So that was obviously very much in contrast to your earlier documentary, which you did, which again, as you mentioned, was, was titled once upon Atari. So could you maybe give us a bit of an understanding of of why you felt that was necessary?
1: Uh, Once upon Atari was something I had to do to start to unravel and really come to terms with the experience that I had at Atari, because uh, the experience I had at Atari was absolutely life changing. It was an incredible, unbelievable experience very early in my professional career Completely warped my idea of what a career should be and changed the course of my life in so many directions. But for years after Atari, I kept trying to figure out ways to deal with it to resolve it in my mind. And me being the media focused individual that I am, I just thought, I want to go into filmmaking at some point. I have this issue I'm trying to work out and resolve. It just went together. And also, You know, as I said before, I really like the idea of myth-busting and exciting and fresh ways. And all the media that I saw coming out about Atari, because there was a lot of media that came out about Atari once the crash happened and once everything was moving on from Atari in the gaming world. What was interesting to me was that the, the real machinations that went on inside Atari were so much more dynamic and so much more interesting than the things that were being reported and discussed. it it disgusted me. (laughs) It was like, I couldn't believe that people were settling for this version of a story that was so much more compelling on the inside. So then I thought, you know, I know what the story is. I know the people who made the story. And so I went and gathered up a whole bunch of people And I knew what to ask them and I knew they would talk to me in a way they might not talk to other people in the press And so I set about this mission to deliver A more accurate picture of the amazing reality that was atari in the heyday And what I ended up with was a way of really understanding and processing my experience In a way that sort of freed me to move forward myself
0: Right, okay Um, Obviously there's a lot talked about in terms of what happened. Um and, and as you mentioned, sort of the that sort of era where Atari were a very big brand and very well known, and then suddenly everything seemed to come to a to a halt. So Amazingly why do you think so. that, that changed? Why, what I mean with the industry itself it sort of very much changed, didn't it? And the whole gaming Absolutely. It was so thing just, just
1: stopped, really. Right. And it did. And it's so Before I went into technology, I got a master's in computer engineering in college and graduate school. Before that, I got a bachelor's in economics. And originally, I was going to go in a whole different direction. I decided tech was probably a good thing to do. And so I switched and went in that way. But I always had this, this business orientation and focus. And at Atari, it was like the most amazing case study in business there ever could be. And as an insider technologist, it was interesting to get that point of view. So it's important to remember that Atari was the fastest growing business in American history. And within a couple of years became the fastest falling business in American history, that kind of pop, and then to disappear. Like you were saying, Atari had become the Kleenex of video games, right? I mean, very few brands ever achieved the kind of name recognition that Atari did. And for that to slip away and disappear is astounding. But what did it, I mean, there's a lot of answers for it, right? Some people say the thing that killed the video game industry was my ET video game. Uh, That's a little oversimplified, but I can understand how they got there. I think an accurate, quick uh, one-liner for what happened was it was the first product lifecycle. This was the first time anyone had released a video game console that really swept the market and came out and went somewhere. And nobody really knew how to navigate those waters. And of course, the much bigger answer, all of which are covered extensively in my Once Upon Atari book, is that it was a cultural transition. There was a wave, a cultural wave that washed over Atari. And the story of Atari is a story of a regime under Nolan Bushnell that was all about product and creativity and inspired product and and just creativity. And it was replaced by Warner and Ray Cazar and a mindset of profit maximization. Now, neither of these are evil or bad but they're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. And when you switch from a focus on succeeding by realizing a dream and switch it over to succeeding by maximizing through channels and profits, there's a very different way that business goes. And when you have people who were set up to succeed in the first, and then you try to fit them into the ladder You create some real big problems, and that cultural shift created a wave that washed out the entire industry.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to hear about that. But of course, the industry recovered dramatically, and in in terms of you know what happened. So, I I would look at it from recollection that it was probably the sort of the mid to late eighties where it potentially died off, and then it there was a resurgence again in the nineties, and in and and ever since, really, it's just been an ever growing um, industry.
1: It was. It was. And uh, I've analyzed that and really looked at that. And I think part of what went on is that you have to look to the financial community, as is so often the case in industry, Right, (laughs) is that what happened was video games were there. And from the financier's point of view, there was always this question in the back of people's mind, is this really a thing or is this a fad? And nobody knew the answer, but they were willing to believe either. I think for us inside, for the people who were developing the games, we recognized what was happening, which was we were developing a new medium. We were pioneering a brand new medium of interactive television, which was a huge thing to do. And obviously that was never going to go away. That would, that nothing was going to change that. But from a financier's point of view, this was a huge profit monster, right? It was just amazing opportunity. And then suddenly The industry got overrun, oversaturated, it fell apart, and it died, at least in America. And so what that did was it convinced a lot of financial people that it was a fad. That answered the question, was it a fad or was it real? Oh, it was a fad, and all the money went away, which means startups, new new ventures, all of those sort of went away for a while. What revived the business was in other countries, specifically Japan, Sega and Nintendo, they didn't have this experience. Right. They were still running and working on their next generation systems, which Atari had never done because Atari, you know, Atari didn't want to do a next generation system because they kept milking the cash cow of the 2600. So why would you step on that? They didn't understand the idea that there's a limited life and you're going to have to have a next act. They were just still milking this incredible cash cow. So when Atari died and there was no investors left to bring someone else in, eventually other machines came in from other countries and those gained a foothold, right? The revival in the late 80s was not American-based machines. It was foreign machines. And there was the Japanese that came in and showed us that, yes, there is a second act. There is more life. And also they learn from the mistakes of Atari. Because one thing Atari did was it was the first Penguin, right? Atari was the one who made the mistakes that other people got to see and take advantage of to come in in the second wave and correct a lot of the issues.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now, I want to go back to something you mentioned just now as well. So you mentioned the E.T. game. But I think before we talk about that, maybe it's worth people knowing that you were obviously involved in some other very successful games prior to that. So could you maybe give us a bit of an insight into your into your game development history at Atari?
1: Absolutely. Uh, my first game was assigned to be a coin-op conversion, because back then, one of the big things you do is take a popular coin-op game and adapt it to the home console. Of course, the, yes. the, the coin-op technology was so far ahead of the console technology, they usually were going to not be very good games. So I was assigned this coin op conversion. I had begged my way into Atari in the first place. I was on probation, got my first assignment. And the first thing I did was look it over very carefully, study it a bit, then go to my manager and say, you know what? I think this game is really going to suck on this console. I think it's just going to (laughs) be horrible. And I can't afford to have my first game suck. I just don't want that to happen. So I, I presented an alternate design of something that would use some of the game mechanics, but do it in a way that was much more friendly to the console. And they fortunately gave me the latitude to pursue this idea, and I developed it and worked it through, and that eventually became Yars' Revenge, which was his biggest-selling original video game. And I not only made the game, I also wrote the backstory, which was the first backstory to a video game in history, and created a number of other firsts, because my goal with that first game was to make a splash and establish myself as a video game designer and programmer. And so Yar's Revenge did very well and set me up for the next game, which was uh, they were looking... The idea of doing movie licenses was new. And in fact, the very first movie license in video gaming was Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Steven Spielberg movie. And so I was selected to do that game on the heels of Yars' Revenge. I interviewed with Steven Spielberg. I called him an alien, explained to him my theory about why he's an alien. And I think that helped get me his approval to do the game. (laughs) And then, yeah, and I made Raiders of the Lost Ark. And my goal with that game was to make the biggest, greatest scope uh, adventure game that anybody had ever seen on the VCS. Yeah. And then that game went well enough that it set me up to be the chosen one to do ET. And uh, that was my third game. So, but by the time I was, you know, selected to do the ET video game, I was already two for two with million sellers of major titles, you know, of significance in the industry. So, yes, uh, I had established a pedigree and then, uh, I kind of turned into a dog.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: on the game.
0: So there's been all sorts of things talked about that, in, in in particular, the amount of time that you had, given there was a deadline to get it released. Um, so, so, could true. you maybe give us a bit more of an insight into into what actually happened?
1: Absolutely. So, the the real the thing to understand is so Yars' Revenge. I did that game in seven months. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was a huge effort, and that took uh, about 10 months to do. Video games typically took six to eight months to do, you know, I, maybe five if you really accelerated it. So, and while I was doing Raiders and finishing that off, I didn't know it, but in the background, the negotiations were going on and going on and going on to try and get the rights to ET. When they finally got the rights to ET, It was decided that the game absolutely had to be available for the Christmas market that year. Now, this is pre-internet, right? Nowadays, you know, if something has to be available available for the Christmas market, we just have to have it done, you know, sometime in November and we'll drop it and we can get feedback and we can even tweak it and do a few revisions before Christmas and everybody's great. Uh, Back then, you had to have a physical product on the shelves all over the place to sell something in large quantities, which means that if you backtrack from Christmas market through manufacturing, the the finished product has to be in production September 1st. And when they finished negotiating the rights, it was July 27th. Unfortunately, it was the same year. So that left literally five weeks and one day to do the game. And so I was sitting at my desk, literally recovering from just having finished Raiders of the Lost Ark. I got a call from the CEO of the company who said, hey, Howard. And by the way, I never get calls from the CEO of the company. (laughs) I mean, this is my boss's 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 boss. Calls me direct on the phone. I answer the phone. Yep, here I am. He goes, hey, can you do an ET game by September 1st? And I didn't even think of it. I said. Absolutely. I can absolutely do that game. I said, provided we reach the right deal. And, and there it was. And I believed it. I truly believed I was going to do it because, uh, like I said, I don't know exactly what it was I was full of at that point, but whatever it was, I was overflowing with it in that moment.
0: Right. Okay, and obviously th- there is a bit of an urban myth. I don't know where, how true this is about what actually happened. So obviously the sales of E.T. weren't what was expected, and there were a lot of games that just didn't move off the shelves.
1: Well, there's a. You're right. There's a lot of there's a lot of speculation about that, and there were a lot of returns. They they ran uh, roughly four million cartridges. Yep. For E.T. in anticipation of it, and I did finish the game. I made a completed done finished game that even had some innovations it was the first 3d game surface it was the first 3d playing world it had some of the first context specific uh, power-ups and things there were some innovative concepts in it but mostly it was a game that i knew i could do in five weeks and that's what it was and it passed q a it was a done game and but it committed one of the great sins of video game design which is it's okay to frustrate players but you should never disorient them And there were moments of disorientation in that game that made a lot of players turn off the game very quickly instead of trying to figure out what's going on and learn to play the game. So I was asking too much because what I missed, when you only have five weeks to do the game, uh, what you miss is the tuning time. Because in in most games, most good games, uh, the vast majority of the development is not the actual creating of and programming of the elements of the game so they show up on the screen. It's the time it takes to tune and tweak and turn it from some stuff that happens into a compelling game. And we didn't have that time. So an interesting way to put it is that one of the problems with this game was that I actually realized 100% of my design. Right. If you think about it, most successful products do not realize 100% of their design. They veer off substantially. I mean, most good products really are only realizing about 20 to 25% of their original design because during the development, they got better. Yeah. Right. The difference is is that they're improvements because you learn things as you go and, and you discover things. And I didn't have the opportunity to take advantage of those learning curves. And so uh, ET suffered on that level. And, but, Even after returns, it still sold over a million. In fact, uh, I was three for three in million sellers at Atari. I believe I'm the only engineer at Atari who can make that claim.
0: Right. That is a good claim, definitely, (laughs) yes. And I I presume all of what we've just discussed is very much covered in your book, um, Once Upon Atari.
1: Absolutely. And that's a very good point, is that Once Upon Atari does cover that story. But Once Upon Atari, and the title of the book is Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. Yes. Because the the myth is that the E.T. video game destroyed the industry and that I, by, by proxy, destroyed the industry. And although that's a lovely appellation and some people still hold the idea there's no such thing as bad press, uh, it's, is it really the worst game of all time? It's frequently rated that, and I don't really think it is. But to tell you the truth, I kind of like it. And people rate it the worst game of all time. Yes. Because Yars' Revenge is also frequently rated as one of the best games of all time. So as long as E.T. is the worst, I have the greatest range of any designer
0: in history. Absolutely. That's and, a great uh, takeaway, definitely. <laughs> yes. Good. Okay.
1: But but the real theme of the... Oh, I'm sorry, I just want to say, the real theme of the book is about the cultural shift and the political and interpersonal dynamics that really were the cause of what the thing was. Because whenever you have a tragedy, and I think the fall of the video game industry, something that went from worldwide prominence to almost zero so quickly, it's a tragedy. And it changed a lot of lives. A lot of people lost jobs, lost fortunes. There was a lot of bad stuff that happened from the video game crash. And whenever there's a tragedy, it needs to be personalized, right? Every story, every major story, Uh, You need a face. You need to personalize the story to bring it home to people. And what happened was the story of the video game crash found a face in E.T. E.T. became the face of the video game crash. And uh, unfortunately, I became the butt behind that face.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, Actually, I read a few reviews um, in advance of uh, talking to you, obviously. Um, And one of them I I did spot, which was if you want to understand the true story of the video game crash, I highly recommend this book. I presume you know who actually provided that review?
1: I do. That was Nolan Bushnell himself. Indeed. Co-founder of Atari. Exactly. So he knows He knows that story. Yeah. And so I'm very honored that he feels it's uh, worth recognizing that way. Yeah, it's, I've been very blessed with some very positive reviews. But what I tried to do was just tell a, a major truth about. And what I've heard a lot from people is that the, the way I've explained the interdepartmental uh, vicious politics, the sniping, uh, the lack of cooperation, the misunderstandings that went on. Uh, people find it very fresh today because and, and you know, the thing is, it, people find it very odd that I became a psychotherapist. You know, I was a technologist. I was a programmer and most people don't think of programmers as the kind of people who are going to become therapists. But I always was. I was always more focused on people and dynamics than I was on technology. And wh- I found it very interesting uh, to see how people in a successful corporation uh, end up turning on one another. It's uh, because, you know, one thing you learn in a place where there's a dramatic success is that success has a thousand parents, but failure is an orphan.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: That was rarely so true as it was at Atari.
0: Interesting, yeah, absolutely, right. Okay, well, that was a great overview and understanding of, of um, Once Upon Atari. But obviously, regular listeners will know that the, the podcast does follow pretty much a very fixed format usually. So, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the the standard question set within the the um, the podcast interview. So, hopefully, that's okay with you. Sure. Yeah. So I really wanted to start with asking you if you can share maybe a career tip, one that the audience may not be aware of and perhaps should be.
1: Uh, I'll tell you one thing that I think is a really important thing to know in almost any career, but especially if you're going to go into technology and even more so if you're going to go into technology entertainment. And that is you need to be prepared to pay your dues. And everybody says, you know, pay your dues and that's it. And that's okay. Everybody gets the idea that I'm going to have to work to do something. But here's the thing about uh, when you go into entertainment technology, as I I mentioned earlier that, you know, I grew up looking at films because I didn't grow up with video games. I was one of the people who created video games. So I don't know what it's like to grow up in a world where there are video games. But most people today do. And if you grew up with something and you dreamed about it and you aspired to it, you have your own fantasy of what that's going to be like. So when I became a video game maker, there was no fan, There was no preconcept. I was making it up as I went along. Nowadays, people go into entertainment technology thinking I'm going to be the next whomever, you know, whether it's Spielberg, Steve Jobs. It could be anybody. But it's. I'm going to make a difference. I'm going to be the one who creates this magnificent thing. And you don't usually fantasize about the hard, grueling work and effort it takes to deliver entertainment products, which is brutal. And so when I talk about paying your dues, what I really mean is be prepared to have your dreams shattered is a tough word for it but corrected i think is more accurate because the difference between your fantasy of where you're trying to get to and the reality of being there that can be harsh so be prepared and know this know this that if you break through and you stay the course and you make it through to getting your product out that feeling that idea that people are out there enjoying your work your creative product and you're entertaining literally millions of people it's worth it. It's totally worth it. But it's a harder path than you imagine.
0: Yeah, it is. Absolutely. Okay. The, the next question that we may have already touched on it, but, but what was your worst career moment and what you, did you learn from that? Oh, so many to choose from, to tell you the <laughs> truth. Um, my worst career moment
1: at Atari was probably uh, during the development of my first game, Yar's Revenge. Before it was Yars' Revenge, because I didn't make up the whole Yars' Revenge story till the end. I had this concept. I had convinced everyone that it was a better idea for me to pursue my proposed design than it was to do the licensed game they wanted me to do. And about two months in, when I had the basic game mechanics up and functioning, the game, unfortunately, did suck. <laughs> and, and I thought, oh my God, I've talked myself into a hole and how am I going to unbury myself from this? Because, And that was a really scary point. Uh, fortunately, I was able to take some positive feedback from some other people. I was able to get off my horse and listen enough to actually make some real changes that forced me to do some real different things in the game and everything turned around. But that moment before... When I just realized, wow, I've walked right where I was going, and and it's horrible. It was yep, tough. Absolutely, that was tough. I'll tell you another moment that before that that was even worse. Was the moment I was I I'd gone to graduate school and found a love of computing. I loved 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 programming computers. It was the answer to everything I was pursuing, which I never had the answer to what I wanted to do. So that was great. And then I got out and I got a job at Hewlett Packard. I was a multi-terminal systems engineer at Hewlett Packard. I was really rolling. I thought, this is great. And what I was doing there was horrible. It was horrible because it was boring. And I went into computers. This may sound funny, but I went into computers for the excitement. <laughs> and, yeah. and. Uh, Because it is an exciting thing to people who love computing and understand where I'm coming from. It is an exciting thing. And when I got to HP, I lost that passion. I lost that excitement. I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And I found out about Atari, and it literally saved my professional life. But I was literally, I I was just depressed and in tears contemplating where did this thing that I loved go? That was a real low point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, obviously, conversely, there must be career highlights. So could you maybe give us a, an example of maybe a highlight in your career so far?
1: Well, got plenty of those too, I gotta say. Good. I guess I'm a guy <laughs> who kind of lives at the edges of the spectrum, right? Yes. I mean, there are big highs or big lows. But uh, one absolute killer moment, career moment, does go back to when I was uh, trying to get I was being interviewed by Steven Spielberg to do Raiders of the Lost Ark. And so it was my job to get on an airplane early in the morning, fly to L.A., fight the traffic and arrive at uh, Universal Studios or Warner Brothers Studios, rather, to Steven Spielberg's office for an interview with him. I'm going to go there and Steven Spielberg is going to interview me to see if I get to do a game for his movie. And. And I'm a huge movie and TV buff, right? As I mentioned, I think. And so Mm -hmm. I get there and I went through everything to try and I'm not an early morning person either, but I went through everything (laughs) to arrive in LA at this office at 930. I got there at 925. I walk in the room and the first thing I hear is there's the receptionist there. And she says to me, oh, we've moved your meeting to 330 this afternoon. And I'm like, what? What? I flew, I flew. I took an airplane to get here to make this meeting. What do you mean you moved it six hours? And she says, "Yeah," and and I was really at first, I was really kind of bugged, but yeah. then I realized, wait a minute. So I looked. Her, I said, "Can you fix my ticket for me?" So my return flight, and they said, "Yeah," and they took care of that. And then I said, "Hey, you know, this is Warner Studios." I said, "Between now and three uh, thirty, is it okay if I just sort of cruise around the lot?" And they go. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. So I got to spend a full day unescorted all over Warner Brothers Studios. I stole things from sets. I I ate at the commissary with people in costume. It was the most amazing day. And then at the end of that, I got to interview with Steven Spielberg, got to explain to him why I know he's an alien and ended up getting approval to do his game. But I'll tell you beyond that, I'll tell you one other moment that's just that still lives in me as super satisfying, an incredible moment, is that is people talk about, you know, at Atari, people talk about drugs at Atari, right? And you know, yeah, I'm not gonna kid you, there were plenty of drugs at Atari. But the big drug, the main drug at Atari, was getting a game done. Because what back then it wasn't a collaborative effort, right? It was one person, one game. It was your game. And to get your game released and get it out on shelves and in stores and to see commercials on TV for your game, that was a high that everybody chased. And that was an amazing experience. And I got the apex moment on that is one day I walked into a store and they they had video games on display and Yars Revenge was up on the demo screen. And there were two kids there who were literally fighting over the controller. There were kids fighting for the opportunity to play my game and I got to see that. That was an incredible moment of satisfaction and that will always stand as one of the most amazing moments of my career.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that probably happened in many homes across the US and elsewhere as well when your game was actually out there.
1: Well, as a therapist, I don't endorse sibling rivalries and fighting, but as a game maker, go for it, guys. (laughs) If you love the game that much, I'm going to appreciate that.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Um, So, Howard, can you tell us what excites you about the future of careers in IT? Well, what's exciting to me
1: about the future of IT is that it's so wide open. One of the things that I think is most overlooked about video games and and tech is that video games are like in some ways the least significant product of video game development. And what I mean by that is if you look to the origin of things like VR and AR and a lot of the really happening technologies that are enabling all kinds of lifestyle uh, improvements and changes and professional developments and things like that, things far beyond video games. Video games were the source of that. If you look yes. at the movie industry, you'll see that CG, you know, and all the great movie effects that you have, all the tech for that was was developed largely by video game development. It was all borrowed from that. Video games and movies have always been like, you know, the the ugly step cousins, you know, who were always yep. had their eye on each other. And so when you look to the future, It's like things like, you know, virtual reality is something everybody gets excited about. But I think what's really going to live on, what's going to be really huge in the future is AR, augmented reality. The idea that you can have advice and help and recognition and understanding to do anything that you're going to do better, if you want to, and to make things more accessible, to make Uh, people's, individuals' capacity to operate in the world more easily, uh, more capably. That's what's coming. And to me, the idea that people keep using tech, people can use technology for all kinds of things. For me, when you use technology to improve someone's life experience, that's the big win. And what's really exciting to me about IT is that this is where the forefront of the tools that are going to literally make people's lives better are coming from. For me, I started off making people's lives better by making entertainment, by video games. I I removed boredom from a lot of people, which I think was a big problem for me. So I really appreciated that. But I've come around to this idea of instead of making games for people. I'm now a therapist who specializes in technologists and super intelligent people. That's who I work with. And so I've kind of come full circle from just entertaining nerds to actually making their lives better. And IT is at the forefront of the tool set that's going to help people make their lives better. And to me, that's the most exciting thing you can do.
0: Yeah, that's great. I'm very well put. Thank you. Um, So we're going to go into the reveal round now. We're going to find out a little bit more about you and the way you think. You ready for this?
1: Uh, I'm always interested in how I think.
0: Good, good. Okay. (laughs) So what first attracted you to a career in IT or tech? The thing that attracted...
1: Honest to God, I avoided computers like the plague until I felt I couldn't avoid them anymore in college. And once I dipped my toe into the computing pool, I realized, oh my God, why have I stayed away from this? This was everything I want. It's a life of solving puzzles and and inventing things. And that's exactly where I come from. It's what I want to do. And the other thing I liked about it is, I, you know, call me crazy, call me a nerd, but I love data. I just love data. And my concept back in the late 70s was that if I get into computers, I'm going to have access to a lot of data. And I love data. So I thought, if I go <laughs> into computers, I'll have access to more data. And won't that make me happy? So that those were the things that led me into it.
0: Yeah. Good. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? Uh, I got to say the best career
1: advice I received was probably, I was sitting in a graduate class in college once and we had a guest lecture, a guy who was actually working in the industry and doing stuff. And he came in and we were talking and he said at one point, he said, you know, he goes, it's really great in school because you get assignments, you do programs and everything works fine. And that's all good. He goes, wait till you get out into the working world. When you get into a company you will not believe. You will. You will never believe that they ever get a product out. He says the world is so chaotic and so crazy. You will never believe they put something out. And I have to say that a lot of places where I've worked, what he said was exactly borne out to be true. And that was that was probably some of the best advice. On a pure on a pu- I can tell you, on a pure technical level though, the best advice I ever got was there was a genius programmer who was also teaching in this program. And what he said to me once that has always rang true always was, you know, you can try to organize your code really well, but the thing that makes the biggest difference in how your program is going to go is how you organize your data. And that was true at the assembly language machine level. It's true at every level is that don't think about how you're going to write your code. Think about how you're going to organize your data because that determines how everything's going to go.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's very good advice. Definitely. And. What is the worst career advice you've ever received?
1: The worst career advice I ever received was from my mother. When when I told her I was going to quit Hewlett Packard to go make games for Atari. And she said, I can't believe you're throwing away a great career at this multinational company to go make games. You're throwing your life away. You're not my son anymore. That was the worst (laughs) career advice, and I'm really glad I didn't take it.
0: No, absolutely. And if you were to begin your career again in today's world, what would you do? If I were to begin my career in gaming in today's
1: world, I would focus way more on the handheld apps than I would on the console experience. because. I started in games where you could be the auteur, where you could be in control and drive your project. And I like that. For me, that's really, that feeds me. That's important. And console gaming has grown way beyond the point where any individual can do it. It's just not realistic. But technology has circled back to the point where now there are handheld apps and things that individuals can develop. And that's where innovation happens. That's where new ideas happen because big console gaming... The, the analogy I like to use is like big console games are like cruise ships and like individual apps are like motorboats. Now, a cruise ship can hold way more people, way more experience, way more supplies. You can have a great time on a cruise ship. But one thing you can't do on a cruise ship is change direction. Right. And a motorboat, when you see a new place, you want to just go look at that. What's over there? I can go there. And if I change my mind, and want to go over here. I can go over there. And that means that you, the 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 journey of discovery lives in flexibility and big projects don't have that. So for me, if I were to go in now, I would go way more towards the handheld app end of things as opposed to trying to engage the console world.
0: Yeah, that's interesting to hear. Definitely. And what career objectives are you currently focusing on? So
1: my current focus, I mean, I'm very passionate about being a therapist. I love being a therapist. I love helping people move forward. But I also, so where I'm doing now is I'm starting to do more writing. I mean, Once Upon Atari is my fourth book, I believe. But I have books coming on relationships. I want to do some books that will help people. I want to bring fresh eyes to old problems because that's what I always like to do. I like to take long-standing problems and find new ways of approaching them, new ways of seeing them. And so that's what I tried to do with Once Upon Atari about the video game industry. And I'm going to do that moving forward with relationships. But I mean, I just have to say that you know that what I did with Once Upon Atari that was a very important thing for me to do was. I really think Once Upon Atari is—it's kind of a love letter to the the never-ending battle between entrepreneurial spirit and corporate groupthink. And I think what I tried to do was to lay bare what I think are kind of ironic wins, losses, and shenanigans of the infighting that always accompanies great corporate success. And I really hope I achieved that with this book because that's—that's what I was setting out to do.
0: Yeah. Good. And what's the number one non-technical skill that has helped you in your career so far?
1: Oh, uh, without question, the number one non-technical skill that I've developed is hypervigilance due to traumatic background. What I mean by that is that (laughs) uh, the ability to pay a tremendous amount of attention to people and what they're up to and what they're doing and who's Zooming who and what's going on because in corporations, that's, that's what you got to pay attention to. And I've always been, I've had this just innate fascination with human behavior and why people do what they do. Whereas some people see something really outrageous and they think, oh, why would someone do that? That's crazy. Why? Some, that's just, it doesn't make any sense. I look at something like that and I think, you know, the person who did that, what they did in that moment, it made sense to them. And I need to figure out how, what kind of point of view, what kind of worldview, is it that what they did makes sense from that point of view? And in a sense, that's how I look at doing therapy. Right, as I look at every individual, the way I look at therapy is everybody has their own OS. It's like you're living in a world where there's an infinite number of different operating systems. And when a person comes to me in therapy, I think, okay, here's a brand new operating system. What I need to do is figure out the system dynamics in this operating system. And then if I can figure out the API, I'll be able to help them design a new solution to go where they're trying to go. That's honestly the way that I look at doing therapy. And uh I've never heard it put that way by most therapists, but that's
0: really where I come from. I wouldn't have thought so. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you do to keep your own career energized? Uh, What I do to keep my career energized
1: is new things. I always try to do new things. I always try to make new challenges. So, uh, you know, when I was in technology, I always had to have a creative project. So I've gone through writing, uh, writing columns, writing books, uh, photography. Uh, filmmaking. I've been in all kinds of technology. I've been in robotics. I've been in compilers. I've been in video games and real-time control systems. Uh, And now I write and I write in nonfiction. I write narratives. uh, I do all kinds of videos from corporate uh, promotional things to educational things to pure fun and enjoyment stuff. I think you got to keep learning and you got to keep growing. And One of the things that's really beautiful about therapy is I do have a rather esoteric background. Okay. I've, I've endeavored, I've had many different careers because I'm never afraid to make the transition. Okay. Here's, here's the thing that I think is really important about career transitions, if I may. And that is that most people, when they think of a career transition, they think, how can I let go? of all the energy that i've built up and invested in what i've got i have a status in this industry and if i try to do something else i have to start all over again i lose all that status and you know that's true yeah. there is a truth to that and but that's also a fear that blocks people the but the other truth is That expertise that I have from that industry, it doesn't go away. I'm taking it with me. What I'm going to do is go develop more expertise. And the real challenge to a career change is not... How do I say goodbye to everything I was and just venture out in this horrible, strange, this harsh new land you know, and, and start all over again? To me, the challenge is how can I add new skill sets as fast as possible, incorporate them with my old skill sets, which I still have, and create new product directions and new kinds of services that I can deliver? And that's why I became the Silicon Valley therapist, right? I was a Silicon Valley denizen for many years, and I became a therapist who was uniquely in tune with high-tech people and the super intelligent, like I said, the Silicon Valley types, and so i can understand where they're coming from i understand their challenges very few people understand a really tight schedule better than i do <laughs> and you know it's just it's it's a natural merging of my past and my present and uh, my present and one of the great things about therapy is therapy lets you bring everything of your past and your experience to bear and all it does is increase the number of people i can connect with and relate with
0: yes that's very very good and and uh, what do you do? I mean, you may, may have covered this already, but away from technology, do you have any other hobbies that you, you do to, to get away from, um, if you like the tech world? Uh,
1: I guess, you know, I love movies. I've always loved movies and shows and watching them. I like creating them. I'm trying to write more. Uh, but the main, I guess if I had a hobby, my main hobby is exploring new places in my mind. So what I do, like one of my big activities that I like to do is I go for walks. I walk my dog, Jack, the wonder dog. He's an amazing dog who really is clueless about everything. (laughs) But I walk him every morning for miles. And when I walk him, I listen to a lot of times I listen to music with no words or I listen to audio books and everything I hear just sends me off in directions. And so what I do is I keep recording and accumulating ideas. And I have files that are like, literally hundreds of pages of what I call ruminations. They're just idea after idea after idea, because I can get any kind of idea anytime about anything. (laughs) And so I've taken to recording them and that's my big hobby. And then every once in a while I cull through them and I pull out a bunch that are along a similar theme and then I put those together and that becomes a book. Now that'll become an article or a book. And so my next book is going to be, uh, I think the working title is The Method to Cupid's Madness, and it's going to be about how relationships really work as opposed to how we think they work or how we wish they would work, and what we can do when we have trouble with it, which is something I cover in therapy, of course. And, uh, and then the book after that is probably going to be The Silicon Valley Therapist, you know, The Layman's Guide to Nerds.
0: Right. Okay, and how long? I Don't put you on the spot too much, but when do you think those will likely to be to be out? Ah, uh, never soon enough. But I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping to have
1: uh, the uh, Cupid book. I'm hoping to have that within a year from now.
0: Right. Yeah. Good. Okay. Um. And Howard, can you share with us a parting piece of career advice? Um, you know. Pursuing
1: your passion is really hackneyed, okay? It's hackneyed because there's a truth to it, but the spin that I would put on it is understand what you want, okay? There's some people say, you know, pursue your passion. So if you really like jumping off of cliffs, go ahead and jump off a cliff. It'll certainly work for you. I still think jumping off a cliff is jumping off a cliff, and I do not advise people to jump off cliffs. What I say is know thyself. Okay. try to understand yourself a little better, not the you you've been being because that's what you should do or that's what you were trained to do. But the you you'd really care to be and start a journey, start a walking a path where day by day you try to integrate who you want to be a little bit more in what you're busy doing already. And there's an old Chinese saying that says when you add a little to a little, you get a lot. If you start making little changes, you know, the micro adjustments, this is a very popular thing recently, but I think it's it's a longstanding wisdom, is that you make a little change, you keep making changes, and you keep making changes, and each time you make a change, do it with intention know what you're trying to do. And if you keep making changes like that, you're going to wake up six months or a year from now and your life is going to be way different in a positive way than you would have thought was possible at the beginning of that time. Uh, And the other one, I guess one real piece of wisdom I think is available is that it is not important where you get wisdom from. It's just important that you find it.
0: Yeah. That's very, very well put. Definitely. Good. Okay. Howard, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, Phil, thank you for having me. But most importantly, oh, you're welcome. But most importantly, where can we find out more about you, connect with you, and get hold of your book? That is
1: an excellent question, Phil. And I would love to answer that right now by saying that you can can get autographed copies of my book, Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry, at onceuponatari.com. Uh, You can also go to hswarshaw.com, that's H-S-W-A-R-S-H-A-W, and uh, that's my therapy website where you'll find out lots of information about me and my practice and what I do. And uh, Once Upon Atari is available on Amazon as well and a lot of online booksellers. So just go find Once Upon Atari and let it find you. And uh, I really appreciate the time with you, Phil. This has been wonderful talking with you
0: it's been great fun, Howard. I've really enjoyed having a chat with you. So thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you. Hi, Phil here again. Well, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with today's guest. You can find full show notes on the website at itcareerenergizer.com slash e and the number of the episode you've been listening to. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, please make sure that you do so do you get episodes automatically downloaded to your device every Monday. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the IT Career Energizer podcast. To find out more about building a successful career in IT, visit itcareerenergizer.com.